Hi. Hello. And welcome to Kraken's cabin. I'm sorry I've been away for a little while. The phone call, well... We'll talk about that later. There were things that demanded my attention with another researcher, and I needed to focus on that. I hope you've enjoyed this solitude here, with Nisa and Talia keeping you company. They're happy to see me too. Feels like time stops here, doesn't it? Such a view. Especially when the sunset turns that lake outside in the sheets of black and gold. I do have some good news, though. When I was last here, I was reading Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. One of my researchers found this. It's a playing card. It was tucked up with some of the letters my uncle had sent to family on his travels, and they're going over them to see if there's any clues. But look at this. When I hold it up to the light, it's the eight of hearts, right? Now, come over here, beside the fire. Do you see how it changes? And there. Now it's the Eight of Spades. I feel like that's connected somehow. That we're definitely on the right path. I've never seen something like this before, but... I feel like if we continue reading, maybe we'll find some more clues as to where he's gone and must go back. The code is poem. Anyway. I've unpacked, but I am still cold. So, if you're comfortable, let's sit by the fire and we'll begin. Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. Chapter 1 Looking Glass House. One thing was certain that the white kitten had nothing to do with it. It was the black kitten's fault entirely. For the white kitten had been having its face washed by the old cat for the last quarter of an hour and burying it pretty well, considering. So you see, it couldn't have had any hand in the mischief. The way Dina watched her children's faces was this. First she held the poor thing down by its ear with one paw, and then with the other paw, she rubbed its face all over, the wrong way, beginning at the nose. And just now, as I said, she was at hard at work on the white kitten, which was lying quite still and trying to purr, and that feeling that it was all meant for its good black kitten had been finished with earlier in the afternoon, and so, while Alice was sitting curled up in a corner of the great armchair, half talking to herself and half asleep, the kitten had been having a grand time of romps with a ball of wool that Alice had been trying to wind up, and had been rolling it up and down till it had come all undone again. And there it was, spread all over the hearth rug, all knots and tangles, with the kitten running after its own tail in the middle. Oh, you wicked, wicked little thing, cried Alice, catching up the kitten and giving it a little kiss to make it understand that it was in disgrace. Really, Dina ought to have taught you better manners. You ought, Dina. You know you ought, she added, looking reproachfully at the old cat and speaking as as cross a voice as she could manage. And then she scrambled back into the armchair, taking the kitten and the worst with her, and began winding up the ball again. But she didn't get on very far, as she was talking all the time, sometimes to the kitten and sometimes to herself. Kitty sat very demurely on her knee, pretending to watch the progress of the winding, and now and then putting out one paw and gently touching the ball, as if it would be glad to help if it might. Do you know what tomorrow is, Kitty? asked Alice. You'd have guessed if you'd been up in the window with me. Only Dina was making you tidy, so you couldn't. 
I was watching the boys get ready in sticks for the bonfire, and it wants plenty of sticks. Only, it gets so cold, and it snowed so, they had to leave off. Never mind, Kitty. We'll go and see the bonfire tomorrow. Here, Alice wound two or three turns of the worst round the kitten's neck, just to see how it would look. This led to a scramble, in which the ball rolled down upon the floor, and yards and yards of it got unwound again. Don't you know, I was so angry, Kitty, Alice went on, as soon as they were comfortably settled again, when I saw all the mischief that you'd been doing. I was very nearly opening the window and putting you out into the snow. And you'd have deserved it, you little mischievous darling. Well, what have you got to say for yourself? Now, don't interrupt me, she went on, holding up one finger. I'm going to tell you all of your faults. Number one. You squeaked twice when Dino was washing your face this morning. Now you can't deny it, Kitty. I heard you. What's that you say? Pretending that the kitten was speaking. Her paw went into your eye. Well, that's your fault for keeping your eyes open. If you'd have shut them tied up, it wouldn't have happened. Now, don't make any more excuses, but listen. Number two. You pulled Snowdrop away by the tail just as I put her down a saucer of milk before. What? You were thirsty, were you? How do you know she wasn't thirsty too? Now, for number three. You unwound every bit of the worst while I wasn't looking. That's three faults, Kitty. And you've not been punished for any of them yet. You know, I'm saving up all your punishments for Wednesday week. Suppose they saved up all of my punishments, she went on talking more to herself than the kitten. What would they do at the end of a year? I should be sent to prison, I suppose, when the day came. Or, let me see. Suppose each punishment was going to go without dinner. Then, when a miserable day came, I should go without 50 dinners at once. Well, I shouldn't mind that much. I'd far rather go without them than to eat them. Do you hear the snow against the window pane, Kitty? How nice and soft it sounds. Just as if someone was kissing the window all over outside. I wonder if the snow loves the trees and fields, that it kisses them so gently. And then it covers them up snug, you know, the white quilt. And perhaps it says, go to sleep, darlings, till the summer comes again. And when they wake up in the summer, Kitty, they dress themselves all in green and dance about whenever the wind blows. Oh, that's very pretty, cried Alice, dropping the ball of worst the clap to her hands. And I do so wish it was true. I'm sure the woods look sleepy in the autumn when the leaves are getting brown. Kitty, can you play chess? Now, don't smile, my dear. I'm asking it seriously. Because when we were playing just now, you watched just as if you understood it. And when I said check, you purred. Well, it was a nice check. And really, I might have won. If I hadn't been for that nasty night that came wiggling down among my pieces. Kitty, dear, let's pretend. And here, I wish I could tell you half the things Alice used to say, beginning with her favourite phrase. Let's pretend. She had quite a long argument with her sister only the day before. All because Alice had begun with, let's pretend we're kings and queens. And her sister who liked to be very exact, had argued that they couldn't, because there were only two of them, and Alice had been reduced to at least say, well, 
you can be one of them then, and I'll be all the rest. Once she'd really frightened her old nurse by shouting suddenly in her ear, Nurse, do let's pretend that I'm a hungry hyena and you're a bone. This has taken us away from Alice's speech to the kitten. Let's pretend that you're the Red Queen, kitty. Do you know, I think if you sat up and folded your arms, you'd look exactly like her. No, do try. And Alice got the Red Queen off the table and set it up before the kitten as a model for it to imitate. However, the thing didn't succeed, principally, Alice said, because the kitten wouldn't fold its arms properly. So, to punish it, she held it up to the looking glass that I might see how sulky it was. And if you're not good directly, she added, I'll put you through the looking glass house. How would you like that? Now, if you'll only attend Kitty and not talk so much, I'll tell you all my ideas about looking glass house. First, there's a room that you can see through the glass. It's just the same as our drawing room. Only things go the other way. I can see all of it when I get up upon the chair. All but the bit just behind the fireplace. Oh, I do so wish I could see that bit. I want so much to know whether there's a fire in the winter. You never can tell, you know, unless our fire smokes. And then the smoke comes up into that room too. But that might only be a pretense, just to make it look as if they had a fire. Well, then, the books are something like our books, only the words go the other way. I know that because I've held up one of our books to the glass and then they hold up one of theirs in the other room. How would you like to live in Looking Glass House, Kitty? I wonder if they'd give you milk in there. Perhaps Looking Glass milk isn't good to drink, but, oh, Kitty, now we've come to the passage. You can just see a little peep of the passage in the Looking Glass House, if you leave the door of our drawing room wide open. And it's very like our passage as far as you can see. Only, you know, it may be quite different on beyond. Kitty. How nice it would be if we could only get through into the looking glass house. I'm sure it's got such beautiful things in it. Let's pretend that there's a way of getting through to it somehow. Let's pretend the glass has got all soft like gauze so that we can get through. Why? It's turning into a sort of mist now, I declare. It'll be easy enough to get through. She was up on the chimney place when she said this, though she hardly knew how she got there, and certainly the glass was beginning to melt away, just like a bright silvery mist. In another moment Alice was looking through the glass, and had jumped lightly down into the looking glass room. The very first thing she did was to look whether there was a fire in the fireplace, and she was quite pleased to find that it was a real one, blazing away as brightly as the one she'd left behind. So I shall be as warm here as I was in the old room, thought Alice. Warmer, in fact, because there'd be no one here to scold me away from the fire. Oh, what fun that will be when they see me through the glass in here and can't get to me. Then she began looking around and noticed that what could be seen from the old room was quite common and uninteresting. But the rest was as different as possible. For instance, the pictures on the wall next to the fire seemed to be all alive and the very clock on the chimney piece. You know, the one that you can only see the back of in the looking glass. I've got the face of a little old man, and a grinned at her. It'll keep this room so tidy as the other, Alice thought to herself, 
as she noticed several of the chessmen down in the hearth amongst the cinders. But in another moment, with a little, oh, of surprise, she was down on her hands and knees watching them. And the chessmen were walking about, two by two. Here are the Red King and the Red Queen, Alice said, in a whisper, for fear of frightening them. And there are the White King and the White Queen sitting on the edge of the shovel. And here are two castles walking arm in arm. I don't think they can hear me, she went on. She put her head closer down. And I'm nearly sure they can't see me. It feels somehow as if I were getting invisible. Here, something began squeaking on the table beside Alice and made her turn her head just in time to see one of the white palms roll over and began kicking. She watched it with great curiosity to see what would happen next. It is the voice of my child, the white queen cried out as she rushed past the king so violently that she knocked him over amongst the cinders. My precious lily, my imperial kitten. And she began scrambling wildly up the side of the fender. Imperial fiddlestick, said the king, rubbing his nose, which had been hurt by the fall. He had a right to be a little annoyed with the queen, for he was covered with ashes from head to foot. Alice was very anxious to be of use, and, as the poor little lily was nearly screaming himself into a fit, she hastily picked up the queen and sat her on the table by the side of her noisy little daughter. The queen gasped and sat down, the rapid journey through the yard quite taken away by her breath. And for a minute or two she could do nothing but hug the little lily in silence. As soon as she had recovered her breath a little, she called out to the white king, who was sitting sulkily among the ashes. Mind the volcano. What volcano? said the king looking up anxiously into the fire, as if he thought this was the most likely place to find one. Blew me up, panted the queen, who was still a little out of breath. Mind you come up the regular way, and don't get blown up. Alice watched the White King as he slowly struggled from the bar to bar, till at last she said, Why, you'll be hours and hours getting to the table at that rate. I'd far better help you, hadn't I? But the king took no notice of the question. It was quite clear that he could neither hear her nor see her. So, Alice picked him up very gently and lifted him across more slowly than she had lifted the queen, that she mightn't take his breath away. But, before she put him on the table, she thought she might as well dust him off a little. He was so covered in ashes. She said afterwards that she had never in all of her life such a face as the king had made when he found himself held in the air by an invisible hand and being dusted. He was far too much astonished to cry out, but his eyes and his mouth were getting larger and larger, and rounder and rounder, till her hand shook so with laughing that she nearly dropped him on the floor. Oh, please don't make such faces, my dear, she cried out, quite forgetting that the king couldn't hear her. You'll make me laugh so that I can hardly hold you. Don't keep your mouth so wide open. All the ashes will get into it. Now, I think you're tidy enough, she added. She smoothed his hair and set him upon the table next to the queen. The king immediately fell flat on his back and lay perfectly still. Malice was a little alarmed at what she had done and went round to the room to see if she could find any water to throw over him. However, she could find nothing but a bottle of ink. When she got back with it, she found that he had recovered 
and he and the Queen were talking together in a frightened whisper, so low that Alice could hardly hear what they said. The King was saying, I assure you, my dear, turn cold to the very ends of my whiskers. To which the Queen replied, You haven't got any whiskers. The horror of that moment, the King went on, I shall never, never forget. You will, though, the Queen said, if you don't make a memorandum of it. Alice looked on with great interest as the King took an enormous memorandum book out of his pocket and began writing. A sudden thought struck her. She took hold of the end of the pencil, which had come some way over his shoulder. She began writing for him. The poor King looked puzzled and unhappy and struggled with the pencil for some time without saying anything. But Alice was too strong for him. And at last he panted out, My dear, I really must get a thinner pencil. I can't manage this one a bit. It writes all manner of things that I don't intend. What manner of things? said the Queen, looking over the book, in which Alice had put, The white knight is sliding down the poker. He balances very badly. That's not a memorandum of your feelings. There was a book lying near Alice on the table. And while she sat watching the White King, for she was still a little anxious about him, and had the ink all ready to throw over him in case he fainted again. She turned over the leaves to find some part of it that she could read. For it's all in some language that I don't know, she said to herself. She puzzled over the message for some time, but at last a bright thought struck her. Why? It's a looking-glass book, of course, and if I hold it up to a glass, the words will all go the right way again. And this was the poem that Alice read. Jabberwocky. T'was brillig and slithy toves to gyre and gimble in the wave. All whimsy were the borough groves, and mulmerys their grave. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, claws that snatch. Beware the jubjub bird, and shun the fremulous bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, Long time the maxim foe he sought. So rested he by the tin-tum tree, And stood a while in thought. And, as in uffish thought he stood, The jabberwock with eyes of flame, Came whiffing through the tugly wood, And burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, And three, and three. The vorpal blade mint snicker-snack, He left it dead with its head, he went glumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come into my arms, my beamish boy. O frabulous day, kalu kalay, he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig and slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. All whimsy were the borough groves, and moaned rays out grape. It seems very pretty, she said when she'd finished it. But it's rather hard to understand. You see, she didn't like to confess, even to herself, that she couldn't make it out at all. Somehow, it seems to fill my head with ideas, only I don't exactly know what they are. However, somebody killed something. That's clear at any rate. But, oh, thought Alice, suddenly jumping up. If I don't make haste, I shall have to go back through the looking glass before I've seen what the rest of the house looks like. Let's have a look in the garden first. She was out of the room in a moment and ran down the stairs. Or, at least, it wasn't exactly running, 
but a new invention for getting down the stairs quickly and easily, as Alice told herself. She kept the tips of her fingers on the handrail and floated gently down without even touching the stairs with her feet. And then she floated on through the hall and would have gone straight out the door in the same way if she hadn't caught hold of the doorpost. She was getting a little giddy with so much floating in the air, almost rather glad to find herself walking again in the natural way. Chapter 2 The Garden of Live Flowers I should see the garden far better, said Alice to herself, if I could get to the top of that hill. And here's a path that leads straight to it. At least, no, it doesn't do that. After going several yards along the path, and turn in several sharp corners. But I suppose it will at last. But how curiously it twists. It's more like a corkscrew than a path. Well, this turn goes down the hill, I suppose. No, it doesn't. This goes straight back to the house. Well then, I'll try it the other way. And so she did, wandering up and down and trying turn after turn but always coming back to the house, do what she would. Indeed, once, when she turned a corner rather more quickly than usual, she ran against it before she could stop herself. It's no use talking about it, Alice said, looking up at the house and pretending it was arguing with her. I'm not going in again. I know I should have to get through the looking glass again, back into the old room, but that would be the end of all my adventures. So... Resolutely turning her back upon the house, she set out once more down the path, determined to keep straight on until she got to the hill. For a few moments all went well, and she was just saying, I really shall do it this time, when the path gave a sudden twist and shook itself, as she described it afterwards, and the next moment she found herself actually walking in at the door. Oh, that's too bad, she cried. Never saw such a house for getting in the way, never. However, there was a hill full in sight, so there was nothing to be done but start again. This time she came upon a large flower bed, and with a border of daisies and a willow tree getting in the middle. Oh, tiger lily, said Alice, addressing herself to one that was waving gracefully about in the wind. I wish you could talk. We can talk, said the tiger lily, when there's anybody worth talking to. Alice was so astonished that she couldn't speak for a minute. It quite seemed to take her breath away. At length, as the tiger lily only went on waving about, she spoke again in a timid voice, almost in a whisper. And can all flowers talk? As well as you can, said the tiger lily, and a great deal louder. It isn't for manners for us to begin, you know, said the rose next to them. And I really was wondering when you'd speak. I said hi to myself. Her face has got some sense in it, though. It's not a clever one. Still, you're the right colour, and that goes a long way. I don't care about the colour, Tiger Lily remarked. If only your petals curled a little more, she'd be alright. Alice didn't like being criticised, so she began asking questions. Aren't you sometimes frightened at being planted out here with nobody to take care of you? There's a tree in the middle, said the rose. What else is it good for? But what could it do if any danger came? Alice said. Well, it could bark, said the rose. It says, Bow! cried a daisy. That's why its branches are called boughs. 
Didn't you know that? cried another dizzy. And here they all began chatting together, till the air seemed quite full of little shrill voices. Silence, every one of you, cried the tiger lily, waving itself passionately from side to side and trembling with excitement. They know I can't get at them, it panted, bending its quivering head towards Alice, or they wouldn't dare do it. Never mind, Alice said in a soothing tone, and stooping down to the daisies who were just beginning again, she whispered, If you don't hold your tongues, I'll pick you. There was silence in a moment, and several of the pink daisies turned white. That's right, said the tiger lily. The daisies are the worst of all. When one speaks, they all begin together, and it's enough to make one wither to hear the way they go on. How is it you can all talk so nicely, Alice said, hoping to get it into better temper by a compliment. I've been in many gardens before, but none of the flowers could talk. Put your hand down and feel the ground, said the tiger lily. Then you'll know why. Alice did so. It's very hard, she said, but I don't see what that has to do with it. In most gardens, tiger lily said, they make the beds too soft so that the flowers are always asleep. This sounded like a very good reason, and Alice was quite pleased to know it. I've never thought of that before. It's my opinion that you should never at all, the rose said, in a rather severe tone. I never saw anybody look stupider, the violet said, so suddenly that Alice quite jumped, for I hadn't spoken before. Hold your tongue, cried the tiger lily, as if you have ever saw anybody. You keep your head under the leaves and snore away all there, till you know no more what's going on in this world than if you were a bud. Are there any more people in the garden besides me? Alice said, not noticing the rose's last mark. There's one other flower in the garden that can move about like you, said the rose. I wonder how you do it. You're always wondering, said the tiger lily. But she's more bushy than you are. Is she like me? Alice asked eagerly, for the thought crossed her mind. There's another girl in the garden somewhere. Well, she has the same awkward shape as you, the rose said, but she's redder. And her petals are shorter, I think. They're done up close, like a dahlia, said the tiger lily, but tumbled about like yours. But that's not your fault, the rose added kindly. You're beginning to fade, you know. And then one can't help but one's petals getting a little untidy. Alice didn't like this idea at all, so to change the subject, she asked, Does she ever come out here? I dare say you'll see her soon, said the rose. She's one of the kind that has nine spikes, you know. Where does she wear them? Alice asked, with some curiosity. Why, all around her head, of course, the rose replied. I was wondering you hadn't got some too. I thought it was the regular rule. She's coming, said the larkspur. I heard her footstep, thump, 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 along the gravel walk. Alice looked around eagerly and found that it was the Red Queen. She's grown a great deal, was her first remark. She had indeed. When Alice first found her in the ashes, she'd only been three inches high. And here she was, half a head taller than Alice herself. It's the fresh air that does it, said the rose. Wonderfully fine air it is out here. I think I shall go meet her, said Alice, for, though the flowers were interesting enough, 
she felt that it would be far grander to have a talk with the real queen. You can't possibly do that, said the rose. I should advise you to walk the other way. This sounded nonsense to Alice, so she said nothing, but set off at once towards the Red Queen. To her surprise, she lost sight of her in a moment and found herself walking into the front door again. A little provoked, she drew back, and after looking everywhere for the Queen, whom she spied at last a long way off, she thought she would try the plane, this time, of walking in the opposite direction. It succeeded beautifully. She had not been walking a minute before she found herself face to face with the Red Queen, and full in sight of the hill she'd so long been aiming at. Where do you come from? said the Red Queen. Where are you going? Look up, speak nicely, and don't twiddle your fingers all the time. Alice attended to all of these directions and explained, as well as she could, that she'd lost her way. I don't know what you mean by your way, said the Queen. All the ways about here belong to me. But why did you come out here at all? She added in a kinder tone. Curtsy while you're thinking what to say. It saves time. Alice wondered a little at this, but she was too much in awe of the Queen to disbelieve it. I'll try it when I go home, she thought to herself, the next time a little late for dinner. It's time for you to answer now, the Queen said, looking at her watch. Open your mouth a little wider when you speak, and always say your majesty. I only wanted to see what the garden was like, your majesty. That's right, said the Queen, patting her on the head, which Alice didn't like at all. Though, when you say garden, I've seen gardens. Compared with with this, would just be a sheer wilderness. Alice didn't dare to argue the point, but went on. And I thought I'd try and find my way to the top of that hill. When you say hill, Queen interrupted, I could show you hills in comparison with which you'd call that a valley. No, I shouldn't, said Alice, surprised to be contradicting her at last. A hill can't be a valley. That would be nonsense. The Red Queen shook her head. You may call it nonsense if you like, but I've heard nonsense, compared with which that would be as sensible as the dictionary. Alice curtsied again as she was afraid from the Queen's tone that she was a little offended, and they walked on in silence till they got to the top of a little hill. For some minutes, Alice stood without speaking, looking out in all directions over the country. The most curious country it was. There were a number of tiny little brooks running straight across it from side to side, and the ground was divided up into squares by a number of little green hedges that reached from brook to brook. Claire, it's marked out just like a chessboard, Alice said at last. There ought to be some men moving about somewhere. And so there are, she added in a tone of delight, and her heart began to beat quick with the excitement as she went on. It's a great huge game of chess that's being played all over the world. If this is the world at all, you know. Oh, what fun it is. How I wish I was one of them. I wouldn't mind being a pawn. If only I might join. Though, of course, I should like to be queen at best. She glanced rather shyly at the real queen as she said this, but her companion only smiled pleasantly and said, That's easily managed. You can be the white queen's pawn if you like, as Lily's too young to play. And you're in the second square to begin with. When you get to the eighth square, you'll be a queen. And just at this moment, somehow or another, they began to run. 
Alice never could quite make out, and thinking it over afterwards, how it was that they began. All she remembers is that they were running hand in hand, and the Queen went so fast that it was all she could do to keep up with her. And still, the Queen kept crying, faster, faster. But Alice felt she could not go faster, though she had no breath left to say so. The most curious part about the thing is that the trees and the other things around them never changed their places at all. However fast they went, they never seemed to pass anything. I wonder if all of the things move along with us, thought Purr, puzzled Alice. And the Queen seemed to guess her thoughts and cried, Faster! Don't try to talk! Not that Alice had any idea of doing that. She felt as if she would never be able to talk again. She was getting so much out of breath. And still the Queen cried, Faster! Faster! and dragged her along. Are we nearly there? Alice managed to pant out at last. Nearly there, the Queen repeated. Why? We passed it ten minutes ago. Faster! And they ran on for a time in silence, with the wind whistling in Alice's ears and almost blowing her hair off her head, she fancied. No, no, cried the Queen. Faster, faster! And they went so fast that at last she seemed to skim through the air, hardly touching the ground with her feet, till suddenly, just as Alice was getting quite exhausted, they stopped, and she found herself sitting on the ground, breathless and giddy. Queen propped her up against the tree and said kindly, You may rest a little now. Alice looked around her in great surprise. Why, I do believe we've been under this tree the whole time. Everything's just as it was. Of course it is, said the Queen. What would you have it? Well, in our country, said Alice, still panting a little, you generally get to somewhere else if you ran very fast for a long time as we've been doing. A slow sort of country, said the Queen. Now, here, you see, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as that. I'd rather not try, please, said Alice. I'm quite content to stay here. Only I'm so hot and thirsty. I know what you'd like, the Queen said good-naturedly, taking a little box out of her pocket. Have a biscuit. Alice thought it would be civil to say no, though it wasn't at all what she wanted. She took it and ate it as well as she could, but it was very dry, and she thought she'd never been so nearly choked in all her life. Well, while you're refreshing yourself, said the Queen, I'll just take the measurements. And she took a ribbon out of her pocket, marked it in inches, and began measuring the ground, sticking little pegs here and there. At the end of two yards, she said, putting in a peg to mark the distance, I shall give you your directions. Have another biscuit. No, thank you, said Alice. One's quite enough. Thirst quenched, I hope, said the Queen. Alice did not know what to say to this, but luckily the Queen did not wait for an answer, but went on. At the end of three yards, I shall repeat them, for fear of you forgetting them, and at the end of four, I shall say goodbye. At the end of five, I shall go. She had got all the pegs put in by this time, and Alice looked on with great interest as she returned to the tree, and then began slowly walking down the row. At the two-yard peg, she faced around and said, Pong goes two squares in the first move, you know, so you'll go very quickly through the third square, by the railway, I should think. 
you should find yourself in the fourth square in no time. Well, that square belongs to Tweedledum and Tweedledee. The fifth is mostly water. The sixth belongs to Humpty Dumpty. But you make no remark. I... I didn't know I had to make one. Just then, Alice faltered out. You should have said. Queen went on in a tone of grave reproof. It's extremely kind of you to tell me all of this. However, we'll suppose it said. The seventh square is all forest. However, one of the knights will show you the way. And in the eighth square, we shall be queens together. And it's all feasting and fun. Alice got up and curtsied and then sat down again. At the next peg, the queen turned again. And this time she said, speak in French when you can't think of the English for a thing. Turn out your toes as you walk and remember who you are. She did not wait for Alice to curtsy this time, but walked on quickly to the next peg, which she turned for a moment to say goodbye and then hurried on to the last. How it happened, Alice never knew. Exactly as she came to the last peg, she was gone. Whether she vanished into the air or whether she ran quickly into the wood, she can run very fast, thought Alice. There was no way of guessing, but she was gone. And Alice began to remember that she was a pawn and that she would soon be time for her to move. Chapter 3 Looking Glass Insects Of course, the first thing to do was to make a grand survey of the country that she was going to travel through. It's something very like learning geography, thought Alice, as she stood on tiptoe in the hopes of being able to see further. Principal rivers? There are none. Principal mountains? I'm only only one, but I don't think it's got an any name. Principal towns? Why? What are those creatures making honey down there? They can't be bees. Nobody ever saw bees in my loft, you know. And for some time she stood silent, watching one of them that was bustling about amongst the flowers, poking its proboscis into them. Just as if it was a regular bee, thought Alice. However, this was anything but a regular bee. In fact, it was an elephant, as Alice soon found out, though the idea quite took her breath away at first. What enormous flowers they must be, was her next idea. Something like cottages with the roofs taken off and stalks put to them. And what quantities of honey they must make. I think I'll go down and... No. No, I won't go just yet she went on, checking herself just as she was beginning to run down the hill and trying to find some excuse for turning shy so suddenly. It'll never do to just go down amongst them without a good long branch to brush them away. What fun it'll be when they ask me how I liked my walk. I shall say, oh, I liked it well enough. Here came the favourite little toss of her head. Only, it was so dusty and hot, and the elephants did tease so. I think I'll go down the other way, she said after a pause, and perhaps I may visit the elephants later on. Besides, I do so want to get to the third square. So, with this excuse, she ran down the hill and jumped over the first of the six little brooks. Tickets, please, said the guard, putting his head in the window. In a moment, everybody was holding out a ticket, and they were at the same size as the people and quite seemed to fill the carriage. Now then, show your ticket, child, the guard went on, looking angrily at Alice. And a great many voices all said together, like the chorus of a song, 
thought Alice. Don't keep him waiting, child. Why? His time is worth a thousand pounds a minute. I, I'm afraid I haven't got one, Alice said in a frightened tone. There wasn't a ticket office where I came from. And again, the chorus of voices went on. There wasn't room for one when she came from. Lander is worth a thousand pounds an inch. Don't make excuses, said the guard. You should have bought one from the engine driver. And once more, the chorus of voices went on with, The man drives an engine. Why, the smoke alone is worth a thousand pounds a puff. Alice thought to herself, Then there's no use in speaking. The voices didn't join in, this time, as she hadn't spoken aloud. But, to her great surprise, they all thought in chorus. I hope you understand what thinking in chorus means, for, I must confess, I do not. It's better to say nothing at all. Language is worth a thousand pounds a word. I shall dream about a thousand pounds tonight. I know I shall, thought Alice. All this time the guard was looking at her, first through a telescope, then through a microscope, and then through an opera glass. At last, he said, you're travelling the wrong way, and shut up the window and went away. So young a child, said the gentleman sitting opposite her. He was dressed in white paper. Not to know which way she's going, even if she doesn't know her own name. A goat that was sitting next to the gentleman in white shut his eyes and said in a loud voice, She ought to know her way to the ticket office, though, even if she doesn't know her alphabet. There was a beetle sitting next to the goat, for it was a very queer carriage full of passengers altogether. And as the rule seemed to be that they should all speak in turn, he went on with, She'll have to go back from here as luggage. Alice couldn't see who was sitting beyond the beetle, but a hoarse voice spoke next. Change engines, said, and then it choked and was obliged to leave off. It sounds like a horse, Alice thought to herself, and an extremely small voice, close to her ear, said, Something about horses. Then a very gentle voice in the distance said, She must be labelled, lass, with her, you know. And after that, the other voices went on. What a number of people there are in this carriage, thought Alice, saying she must go by post, so she's got a head on her. She must be sent by message in the telegraph. She must draw the train herself the rest of the way, and so on. But the gentleman dressed in white paper leaned forwards and whispered in her ear, Never mind what they all say, my dear, but take a return ticket every time the train stops. Indeed I shan't, Alice said rather impatiently. I don't belong to this railway journey at all. I was in a wood just now, and I wish I could go back there. You might make a joke on that, said the little voice close to your ear. Something about you would if you could, you know? Don't tease so, said Alice, looking about in vain to see where the voice had come from. If you're so anxious to have a joke made, why don't you make one yourself? The little voice sighed deeply. It was very unhappy, evidently, and Alice would have said something pitying to comfort it. If it would have only sighed like other people, she thought. But this was such a wonderfully small sigh that she wouldn't have heard it at all if it hadn't come quite close to her ear. The consequence of this was that it tickled her ear very much and quite took off her thoughts from the unhappiness of the poor little creature. I know you are a friend, a dear friend and an old friend. You won't hurt me, 
though I am an insect. What kind of insect? Alice inquired, a little anxiously. What she really wanted to know was whether it could sting or not, but she thought this wouldn't be a civil question to ask. The little voice began, when it was drowned by a shrill scream from the engine, and everybody jumped up in alarm, Alice among the rest. The horse, who put his head out of the window, quietly drew it in and said, It's only a brook we have to jump over. Everybody seemed satisfied with this, though Alice felt a little nervous at the idea of trains jumping at all. However, it'll take us the four square. That's some comfort, she said this to herself. In another moment, she felt the carriage rise straight up into the air, and in her fright, she caught at the thing nearest to her hand, which happened to be the goat's beard. But the beard seemed to melt away as she touched it, and she found herself sitting quietly under a tree, while the gnat, for that was the insect that she'd been talking to, was balancing itself on a twig just over her head, and fanning her with its wings. It certainly was a very large gnat, about the size of a chicken, Alice thought. Still, she couldn't feel nervous with it after they'd been talking together for so long. Then you don't like all insects? The gnat went on, as quietly as if nothing had happened. I like them when they can talk, Alice said. None of them ever talk where I come from. What sort of insects do you rejoice in where you come from? The gnat inquired. I don't rejoice in insects at all, Alice explained because I'm rather afraid of them, at least the large kinds. But I can tell you the names of some of them. Of course they answer to their names, the gnat remarked carelessly. I never knew them to do it. What's the use of having names, the gnat said, if they won't answer to them? No use to them, said Alice, but it's useful to the people that name them, I suppose. If not, why do things have names at all? I can't say, the gnat replied. Further on, in your wood down there, they've got no names. However, go on with your list of insects. You're wasting time. Well, there's the horsefly, Alice began, counting off the names in her fingers. All right, said the gnat. Halfway up that bush, you'll see a rocking horsefly, if you look. It's made entirely of wood and gets about by swinging itself from branch to branch. What does it live on? Alice asked with a great curiosity. Sap and sawdust said the gnat. Go on with the list. Alice looked at the rocking horse fly with great interest, and made up her mind that it must have just been repainted because it looked so bright and sticky. And then she went on. Well, there's the dragonfly. Look on the branch above your head, said the gnat, and there you'll find a snap dragonfly. Its body is made of plum pudding, its wings of holly leaves, and its head is a raisin burning in brandy. What does it live on? Alice asked as before. Frumenti and mince pie, the gnat replied, when it makes its nest in a Christmas box. And then there's the butterfly, Alice went on, as if she had taken a good look at the insect with its head on fire and had thought to herself, I wonder if the reason insects are so fond of flying into candles, because they want to turn it into snapdragon flies. Well, crawl at your feet, said the gnat. Alice drew back her feet in some alarm. You may observe a bread and butterfly. Its wings are then thin slices of bread and butter. Its body's a crust, and its head is a lump of sugar. And what does it live on? 
weak tea with cream in it. A new difficulty came into Alice's head. Supposing it isn't to find any, she suggested. Well, it would die, of course. But that must happen very often, Alice remarked thoughtfully. It always happens, said the gnat. After this, Alice was silent for a minute or two, pondering. The gnat amused itself, meanwhile, by the humming round and round her head. At last it settled again and remarked, well, suppose you don't want to lose your name. No, indeed, Alice said, a little anxiously. And yet, I don't know, the gnat went on in a careless tone. Only think how convenient it would be if you could manage to go home without it. For instance, if the governess wanted to call you to your license, she would call out, come here. And then she wouldn't have to say anything, because there would be no name for her to call. And of course you wouldn't have to go. That would never do, I'm sure, said Alice. The governess would never think of excusing me from lessons for that. If she couldn't remember my name, she'd call me Miss, as the servants do. Well, if she said Miss and didn't say anything more, the gnat remarked, of course you'd miss your lessons. That's a joke. I wish you'd made it. Why do you wish I'd made it, said Alice. It's a very bad one. But the gnat only sighed deeply while two large tears came rolling down his cheeks. You shouldn't make jokes, Alice said, if it makes you so unhappy. Then came another of those melancholy little sighs, and this time the pernat really seemed to have sighed itself away, for when Alice looked up, there was nothing whatsoever to be seen on the twig. And as she was getting quite chilly with sitting still for so long, she got up and walked on. She very soon came to an open field, with a wood on the other side of it, and it looked much darker than the last wood, and Alice felt a little timid about going into it. However, on second thought, she made up her mind to go on. For I certainly won't go back, she thought to herself, and this was the only way to the eighth square. This must be the wood, she thought thoughtfully to herself, where things have no names. wonder what'll become of my name when I go then. I shouldn't like to lose it at all, because then they'd have to give me another, and it would almost be certain to be an ugly name. But then the fun would be trying to find the creature that had got my old name. It's just like the advertisements, you know, when people lose dogs. Answers to the name of Dash had a brass collar. Just fancy calling everything you met Alice till one of them answered. Only they wouldn't answer at all if they were wise. She was rambling on in this way when she reached the wood. It looked very cool and shady. Well, at any rate, it's a great comfort, she said as she stepped under the trees. After being so hot, get into the... Into the... Into what? She went on, rather surprised at not being able to think of the word. I mean to get under the... Under the... Under this, you know? her head against the trunk of a tree. What does it call itself, I wonder? I do believe it's got no name. Why, to be sure it hasn't. She stood silent for a minute, thinking, and she suddenly began again. Then it really has happened after all. And now, who am I? I will remember, if I can. I'm determined to do it. But being determined didn't help her much. And all she could say after a great deal of puzzling was, L. 
I know it begins with an L. Just then, Fawn came wandering by and looked at Alice with its large, gentle eyes, but didn't seem at all afraid. Here then, here then, Alice said, as she held out her hand and tried to stroke it. But it only started back a little, and then stood looking at her again. What do you call yourself? Fawn said at last. Such a soft, sweet voice it had. I wish I knew, thought poor Alice. She answered rather sadly. Nothing just now. Think again, it said. That won't do. Alice thought, but nothing came of it. Please, would you tell me what you call yourself? She asked timidly. I think that might help a little. I'll tell you, if you come a little further on, said the fawn. I can't remember here. So they walked on together through the wood. Alice with her arms clasped lovingly around the neck of the fawn. So they came out amongst another open field. On here, the fawn gave a sudden bound into the air and shook itself free from Alice's arm. I'm a fawn, it cried out in a voice of delight. And, dear me, you're a human child. A sudden look of alarm came into its beautiful brown eyes, and in another moment it had darted away at full speed. Alice stood looking after it, almost ready to cry with vexation at having lost her dear little fellow traveller so suddenly. However, I know my name now. That's more comfort. Alice, Alice, I won't forget it again. And now, which of these finger posts ought I ought to follow, I wonder? It was not a very difficult question to answer, as there was only one road through the wood, and two finger posts both pointed along it. I'll settle it, Alice said to herself, when the road divides and they point in different ways. But this did not seem likely to happen. She went on and on, a long way. Wherever the road divided, there were sure to be two finger posts pointing in the same direction. One marked to Tweedledum's house, and the other to the house of Tweedledee. I do believe, said Alice at last, that they must live in the same house. Wonder why I never thought of that before. But I can't stay there long. I'll just call and say, how do you do? And ask them if they know the way out of the wood. If I could only get to the eighth square before it gets dark. So she wandered on, talking to herself as she went, till, on turning the sharp corner, she came upon two fat little men, so suddenly that she could not help starting back. But in another moment she recovered herself, feeling sure that they must be. Chapter 4 Tweedledum and Tweedledee they were standing under a tree, each with an arm around the other's neck. And Alice knew which was which in a moment, because one of them had dumb embroidered on his collar, and the other had tea. I suppose they've each got tweedled round on the back of their collar, she said to herself. They stood so still that she quite forgot that they were alive. She was just going around to see if the word tweedle was written at the back of their collar, when she was startled by a voice coming from the one marked dumb. If you think we're waxworks, he said, you ought to pay, you know. Waxworks weren't made to be looked at for nothing, you know. Contrawise, added the one Mark D, if you think we're alive, you ought to speak. Sure, I'm very sorry, was all Alice could say, for the words of the old song kept ringing through her head like the ticking of a clock, and she could hardly help from saying them out loud. 
Twiddledum and Twiddledee agreed to have a battle. For Twiddledums had Twiddledee had spoiled his nice new rattle. Just then flew down a monstrous crow, as black as a tar barrel, which frightened both the heroes so they quite forgot their quarrel. I know what you're talking about, said Tweedledum. But it isn't so, no how. Contrywise, continued Tweedledee, if it was so, it might be. And if it were so, it would be. But as it isn't, it ain't. That's logic. I was thinking, Alice said very politely. Which is the best way out of this wood? It's getting so dark. Would you tell me, please? But the fat little men only looked at each other and grinned. They looked so exactly like a couple of great schoolboys that Alice couldn't help pointing her finger at Tweedledum and saying, First boy. No how, Tweedledum cried out briskly and shut his mouth up again with a snap. Next boy, said Alice, passing on to Tweedledee, though she felt quite certain he would only shut out contrawise. And so he did. You've begun wrong, cried Tweedledum. The first thing to visit is to say, how do you do, and shake hands. On here, the two brothers gave each other a hug, and then they held out two hands that were free to shake hands with her. Alice did not like shaking hands with either of them first, for fear of hurting the other one's feelings. So, the best way out of the difficulty was that she took both hands at once, and the next moment they were dancing round in a ring. This seemed quite natural, she remembered afterwards. She was not even surprised to hear music playing. It seemed to come from the tree from which they were dancing, and it was done, as well as she could make out, by the branches rubbing across one another, like fiddles and fiddlesticks. But it certainly was funny, Alice said afterwards, when she was telling her sister the history of all of this. To find myself singing, here we go round the mulberry bush. I don't know when I began it, but somehow I felt as if I'd been singing it for a very, very long time. The other two dancers were fat and very soon out of breath. Four times round is enough for one dance, Tweedledum pointed out. And then they left off dancing as suddenly as they'd begun, and the music stopped quite in the same moment. Then they let go of Alice's hands, stood looking at her for a minute, and there was a rather awkward pause as Alice didn't know what way to begin the conversation with people that she'd just been dancing with. It would never do to say, how do you do, now, she said to herself. We seem to have gone quite beyond that somehow. I hope you're not so much tired, she said at last. No hell, but thank you very much for asking, said Tweedledum. So much obliged, added Tweedledee. Do you like poetry? Yes, pretty, pretty well. Some poetry, Alice said doubtfully. Would you tell me which road leads out of the wood? What shall I repeat her, said Tweedledee, looking round at Tweedledum with great solemn eyes and not noticing Alice's question. Mm-hmm. The walrus and the carpenter is the longest, Tweedledum replied, giving his brother an affectionate hug. Tweedledee began instantly. The sun was shining, but here Alice ventured to interrupt him. If it's very long, she said, as politely as she could. Would you please tell me first which road? Tweedledee smiled gently and began again. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. 
The moon was shining sulkily because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. The sea was wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud because no cloud was in the sky. No birds were flying overhead. There were no birds to fly. The walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand. They wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If this were only cleared away, they said, it would be grand. If seven maids with seven mops swept for half a year, do you suppose, the walrus said, that they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter, and shed a bitter tear. Oh, oysters, come and walk with us, the walrus did beseech. A pleasant walk, a pleasant walk, along the briny beach. We cannot do with more than four to give a hand each. The eldest oyster looked at him, but never a word he said. The eldest oyster winked his eye and shook his heavy head, meaning to say he did not choose to leave the oyster bed. But four young oysters hurried up, all eager for the treat. Their coats were brushed, their faces washed, their shoes were clean and neat. And this was odd because, you know, they hadn't any feet. Four other oysters followed them, and yet another four, and thick and fast they came at last, and more and more and more, all hopping through the frothy waves and scrambling to the shore. The walrus and the carpenter walked on a mile or two, and then they rested on a rock conveniently low, and all the little oysters stood and waited in a row. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. But wait a bit, the oysters cried, before we have our chat, for some of us are out of breath and all of us are fat. No hurry, said the carpenter. They thanked him for much for that. A loaf of bread, the walrus said, to what we chiefly need. Pepper and vinegar besides are very good indeed. Now if you're ready, oysters dear, we can begin to feed. But not on us, the oysters cried, turning a little blue. After such kindness, that would be a dismal thing to do. The night is fine, the walrus said. Do you admire the view? It was so kind of you to come, and you are so very nice. The carpenter said nothing, but got us another slice. I wish you were not quite so deaf. I had to ask you twice. It seems a shame, the walrus said to play them such a trick after we brought them out so far and made them trot so quick the carpenter said nothing but the butter spread too thick I weep for you the walrus said I deeply sympathize with sobs and tears he sorted out those of largest size and holding his pocket handkerchief before his streaming eyes well oysters said the carpenter you've had a pleasant run shall we be trotting home again but the answer there came none and that was scarcely up because they'd eaten everyone. I liked the walrus best, said Alice, because he was a little sorry for those poor oysters. He ate more than the carpenter, though, said Tweedledee. You see, he held his handkerchief in front so that the carpenter couldn't count how many he took, contrary-wise. That was mean, said Alice indignantly. But I like a carpenter best if he didn't eat so many as the walrus. But he ate as many as he could get, said Tweedledum. This was a puzzler. After a pause, Alice began. Well, 
They were both very unpleasant characters. Here she checked herself in some alarm at hearing something that sounded to her like the puffing of a large steam engine in the wood near them, though she feared it was more likely to be a wild beast. Are there any lions or tigers about here? She asked timidly. It's only the Red King snoring, said Tweedledee. Come, look at him, the brothers cried, and they each took one of Alice's hands and led her up to where the king was sleeping. Isn't he a lovely sight, said Tweedledum. Alice couldn't say honestly that he was. He had a tall red nightcap on, the tassel, and he was lying crumpled up into some sort of untidy heap and snoring loud. Fit the store his head off, as Tweedledum made a remark. I'm afraid he'll catch cold with lying on the damp grass, said Alice, who was a very thoughtful little girl. He's dreaming now, said Tweedledee. And what do you think he's dreaming about? Alice said, nobody can guess that. Why? About you, Tweedledee exclaimed, clapping his hands triumphantly. And if he left off dreaming about you, where do you suppose you'd be? Where I am now, of course, said Alice. Not you, Tweedledee retorted contemptuously. You'd be nowhere. Why? You're only a sort of thing in his dream. If that there king was to wake, added Tweedledum, you'd go out. Bang, just like a candle. I shouldn't, Alice exclaimed indignantly. Besides, if I'm only a sort of thing in his dream, what are you, I should like to know? Ditto, said Tweedledum. Ditto, ditto, cried Tweedledee. He shouted this so loud that Alice couldn't help saying, Hush, you'll be waking him. I'm afraid if you make so much noise... Well, it's no use your talking about waking him, said Tweedledum, when you're only one of the things in his dream. You know very well that you're not real. I'm real, said Alice, began to cry. You won't make yourself a bit realer by crying, Tweedledee remarked. There's nothing to cry about. If I wasn't real, Alice said, half laughing through her tears, because it all seems so ridiculous, I shouldn't be able to cry. I hope you don't suppose those are real tears, Tweedledum interrupted in a tone of great contempt. I know they're talking nonsense, Alice thought to herself, and it's foolish to cry about it. So she brushed away her tears and went on, as cheerfully as she could. At any rate, I'd better be going out of the woods, for really it's coming on very dark. Do you think it's going to rain? Tweedledum spread a large umbrella over himself and his brother and looked up into it. No. I don't think it is, he said. At least not under here, no how. May it rain outside? It may, if it so chooses, said Twiddledee. We've no objection, contrarywise. Selfish things, thought Alice. And she was just going to say goodnight and leave them, when Twiddledum sprang out from under the umbrella and seized her by the wrist. Do you see that? he said, in a voice choking with passion and his eyes grew large and yellow all in a moment as he pointed with a trembling finger at the small white thing lying under a tree. It's only a rabble, Alice said, after a careful examination of the little white thing. Not a rattlesnake, you know, she added hastily, thinking that he was frightened. Only an old rattle, quite old and broken. I knew it was, cried Tweedledum, beginning to stamp about widely in Charity's hair. It's spoilt, of course. Here, he looked at Tweedledee, 
he immediately sat down on the ground and tried to hide himself under the umbrella. Alice laid her hand upon his arm and said in a soothing tone, You needn't be so angry about an old rabble. But it isn't old, Tweedledum cried in a greater fury than before. It's new, I tell you. I bought it yesterday. My nice, new rattle. And his voice rose into a perfect scream. All this time, Tweedledee was trying his best to fold himself up into the umbrella with himself in it, which was such an extraordinary thing to do that it quite took off Alice's attention from the angry brother. But he couldn't quite succeed, and it ended in his rolling over, bundled up in the umbrella, with only his head out. And there he lay, opening and shutting his mouth and his eyes. Looking more like a fish than anything else, Alice thought. Of course, you agree to have a battle, Tweedledum said in a calmer tone. I suppose so, the other sulkily replied as he crawled out of the umbrella. Only she must help us to dress up, you know? So, the two brothers went off hand in hand into the woods and returned in a minute, with their arms full of things, such as bolsters, blankets, hearth rugs, tablecloths, dish covers and coal scuttles. I hope you're a good hand at pinning and tying strings, Tweedledum remarked. Every one of these things has got to go on, somehow or another. Alice said afterwards that she had never seen such a fuss made about anything in all of her life, the way these two bustled about. And the quantity of things that they put on, and the trouble they gave her in tying strings and fastening buttons. Really, they'd be more like bundles of old clothes than anything else by the time they're ready, she said to herself, as she arranged a bolster around the neck of Tweedledee. It's to help his head from being cut off, as he said. You know, he added very gravely, it's one of the most serious things that can possibly happen to one in a battle, to have one's head cut off. Alice laughed loud, but she managed to turn it into a cough for fear of hurting his feelings. Do I look very pale, said Tweedledum, coming up to have his helmet tied on. He called it a helmet, though it certainly looked much more like a saucepan. Well, yes, a little, Alice remarked gently. I'm very brave, generally, he went on in a low voice. Only today I happen to have a headache. And I've got a toothache, said Tweedledee. He had overheard the remark, so I'm far worse than you. Then you'd better not fight today, said Alice, thinking it was a good opportunity to make peace. We must have a bit of a fight, but I don't care about going on for long, said Tweedledum. What's the time now? Tweedledee looked at his watch and said, half past four. Let's fight until six and then have dinner, said Tweedledum. Very well, the other said, rather sadly. And she can watch us. Only, you better not come very close, he added. I generally hit everything I can see when I get really excited. And I hit everything within reach, cried Tweedledum, whether I can see it or not. Alice laughed. You must hit the trees pretty often, I should think, she said. Tweedledum looked around him with a satisfied smile. I don't suppose, he said, there would be a tree left standing forever so far round by the time we finished. And all about a rattle, said Alice, still hoping to make them feel a little ashamed for fighting over such a trifle. I shouldn't have minded so much, said Tweedledum, if it hadn't have been a new one. I wish the monstrous crow would come, thought Alice. There's only one sword, you know, Tweedledum said to his brother, but you can have the umbrella. It's quite as sharp. Only, we must begin quick. It's getting as dark as it can. And darker, said Tweedledee. It was getting dark so suddenly that Alice thought there must be a thunderstorm coming on. 
What a thick black cloud it is, she said. And how fast it comes. Why? I do believe it's got wings. It's the crow! Tweedledum cried out in a shrill voice of alarm. And the two brothers took to their heels and were out of sight in a moment. Alice ran a little way into the wood and stopped under a large tree. It can never get me here, she thought. It's far too large to squeeze itself in amongst the trees. But I wish it wouldn't flap its wings so. It makes quite a hurricane in the wood. Here's somebody's shawl being blown away. Chapter 5 Wool and Water She caught the shawl as she spoke and looked about for the owner. In another moment, the White Queen came running widely through the wood, with both arms stretched out wide as if she were flying, and Alice very civilly went to meet her with the shawl. I'm very glad I happened to be in the way, Alice said, as she helped her put her white shawl on. The White Queen only looked at her in a helpless, frightened sort of way, and kept repeating something in whispers to herself that sounded like bread and butter, bread and butter. And Alice felt as if there was any conversation at all. She must manage it herself. So she began rather timidly. Am I addressing the White Queen? Well, yes, if you call that addressing, the Queen said. It isn't my notion of the thing at all. Alice thought it would never do to have an argument at the very beginning of their conversation, so she smiled and said, If your majesty will only tell me the right way to begin, I'll do it as well as I can. But I don't want it done at all, groaned the poor queen. I've been addressing myself the last two hours. It would have been all the better, as it seemed to Alice, if she had got someone else to dress her. She was so dreadfully untidy. Every single thing's crooked, Alice thought to herself, and she's all over pins. May I put your shawl straight for you? She added aloud. I don't know what's the matter with it, the queen said in a melancholy voice. It's out of temper, I think. I've pinned it here and I've pinned it there, but there's no pleasing it. It can't go straight, you know, if you pin it all on one side, Alice said, as she gently put it right for her. And, dear me, what a state your hair is in. The brush got tangled in it, the queen said with a sigh, and I lost the comb yesterday. Alice carefully released the brush and did her best to get the hair into order. Come, you look rather better now, she said, after altering most of the pins. Really, you should have a lady's maid. I'm sure I'll take you with pleasure, the queen said. Two pence a week and jam every other day. Alice couldn't help but laugh as she said, I don't want you to hire me and I don't care for jam. It's very good jam, said the queen. Well... I don't want any today at any rate. You couldn't have it if you did want it, the Queen said. The rule is jam tomorrow and jam yesterday, but never jam today. It must come sometimes to jam today, Alice objected. No, it can't, said the Queen. It's jam every other day, and today isn't every other day, you know. I don't understand you, said Alice. It's dreadfully confusing. That's the effect of living backwards, the Queen said kindly. It always makes one a little giddy at first. Living backwards, Alice repeated in great astonishment. I've never heard of such a thing. But there's one great advantage to it, that one's memory works both ways. I'm sure mine only works one way, Alice remarked. I can't remember things before they happen. It's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards, the Queen remarked. What sort of things do you remember best? Alice ventured to ask. Oh, Things that have happened the week after next, the Queen replied in a careless tone. For instance, now, 
she went on, sticking a large piece of plaster on her finger as she spoke. There's the king's messenger. He's in prison now, being punished. And the trial doesn't even begin until next Wednesday. And of course, the crime comes last of all. Suppose he never commits the crime, said Alice. That would be all the better, wouldn't it? The queen said, as she bound the plaster around her finger with a bit of ribbon. Alice felt there was no denying that. Of course, it would be all the better, she said, but it wouldn't be all the better for him being punished. You're wrong there, at any rate, said the queen. Were you ever punished? Only for faults, said Alice. And you were all the better for it, I know, the queen said triumphantly. Yes, but then I had done the things that I was punished for, said Alice. That makes the difference. But if you hadn't done them, the queen said, that would have been better still. Better and better and better. Her voice went higher with each better, till it got quite to speak at last. Alice was just beginning to say, there's a mistake somewhere. When the queen began screaming, so loud that she had to leave the sentence unfinished. Oh, 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 shouted the queen, shaking her hand as if she wanted to shake it off. My finger's bleeding. Oh, 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 oh. Her screams were so exactly like the whistle of a steam engine that Alice had to hold both her hands over her ears. What is the matter? She said, as soon as there was a chance of making herself heard. Have you pricked your finger? I haven't pricked it yet, the queen said, but I soon shall. Oh, oh, oh. When do you expect to do it? Alice asked, feeling very much inclined to laugh. When I fasten my shawl again, the poor queen groaned out. The brooch will come undone directly. Oh, oh. As she said the words, the brooch flew open, and the queen clutched widely at it and tried to clasp it again. Take care, cried Alice. You're holding it all crooked. And then she caught at the brooch, but it was too late. The pin had slipped and the queen had pricked her finger. That accounts for the bleeding, you see, she said to Alice with a smile. Now you can understand the way that things happen here. But why don't you scream now? Alice asked, holding her hands ready to put over her ears again. Why? I've done all the screaming already, said the queen. What would be the good of having to do it all over again? By this time, it was getting light. The crow must have flown away, I think, said Alice. I'm so glad it's gone. I thought it was the night coming on. I wish I could be managed to be glad, the queen said. Only I can never remember the rule. But you must be very happy living in this wood and being glad whenever you like. Only it's so very lonely here, Alice said in a melancholy voice. And at the thought of her loneliness, two large tears came rolling down her cheeks. Oh, don't go on like that, cried the poor queen, wringing her hands in despair. Consider what a great girl you are. Consider what a long way you've come today already. Consider what o'clock it is. Consider anything. Just don't cry. Alice could not help laughing at this, even in the midst of her tears. Can you keep from crying by considering things? She asked. That's the way it's done, the Queen said with great decision. Nobody can do two things at once, you know. Let's consider your age to begin with. How old are you? Seven and a half, actually. Well, you needn't say actually, the Queen remarked. I can't believe it without that. Now, I'll give you something to believe. I'm just one hundred and one five months in a day. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you? The Queen said in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. 
there's no use trying. One can't believe in possible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the Queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why? Sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Oh, and there goes the shawl again. The brooch had come undone as she spoke, and a sudden gust of wind blew the Queen's shawl across a little brook. The Queen spread out her arms again and went flying after it, and this time she succeeded in catching it for herself. I've got it, she cried in a triumphant tone. Now you shall see me pin it on again, all by myself. Then I hope your finger is better now, Alice said very politely, as she crossed the little brook after the Queen. Oh, much better, cried the Queen, her voice rising into a squeak as she went on. Much bit better, better, The last word ended on a long bleat, so like a sheep that Alice quite started. She looked at the Queen, who seemed to have suddenly wrapped herself up in wool. Alice rubbed her eyes and looked again. She couldn't make out what had happened at all. Was she in a shop? Was that really... Was that really a sheep that was sitting on the other side of the counter? Rub as she would, she could make nothing more of it. She was in a little dark shop, leaning with her elbows on the counter. And opposite to her was an old sheep, sitting in an armchair, knitting, and every now and then leaving off to look at her through a great pair of spectacles. What is it you want to buy? The sheep said at last, looking up for a moment from her knitting. I don't quite know yet, Alice said very gently. I should like to look all around me if I might. You may look in front of you, and on both sides if you like, said the sheep. But you can't look all around you, unless you've got eyes at the back of your head. But these, as it happened, Alice had not got. So she contented herself with turning around, looking at the shells as she came to them. The shop seemed to be full of all manner of curious things, but the oddest part of all was that whenever she looked at a hard at any shelf to make out exactly what it had on it, that particular shelf was always quite empty, though the others round it were crowded as full as they could hold. Things flow about so here, she said in the last at a plaintive tone, after she'd spent a minute or so in vain pursuit staring at a large bright thing that looked sometimes like a doll and sometimes like a workbox and was always in the shelf next, above the one that she was looking at. And this is the most provoking of all. But I'll tell you what, she added, as a sudden thought struck her. I'll follow it up to the very top shelf of all. It'll puzzle it to go through the ceiling, I expect. But even this plan failed. The thing went through the ceiling as quietly as possible, as if it were quite used to it. Are you a child, or a teetotum? she said as she took up another pair of needles. You'll make me giddy soon, if you go on turning like that. She was now working with fourteen pairs at once, and Alice couldn't help but look at her in great astonishment. How can she knit with so many? Puzzled child thought to herself. She gets more and more like a porcupine every minute. Can you row? The sheep asked, handing her a pair of knitting needles as she spoke. Uh, yes, a little. But not on land, and not with needles. Alice was beginning to say, when suddenly the needles turned into oars in her hands, and she found that they were now in a boat, gliding along between banks so that there was nothing left for it but for her to do her best. Feather, cried the sheep, as she took up another pair of needles. This didn't sound like a remark that needed any answer, so Alice said nothing but pulled away. 
There was something very queer about the water, she thought, as every now and then the oars got fast in it and would hardly come out again. Feather! Feather! The sheep cried again, taking more needles up. You'll be catching a crab directly. Dear little crab, thought Alice. I should like that. Didn't you hear me say feather? The sheep cried angrily, taking up quite a bunch of needles. Indeed I did, said Alice. You've said it very often and very loud. But where are the crabs? In the water, of course, said the sheep, sticking some of the needles into her hair as her hands were now full. Feather, I say. Why do you say feather so often? Alice asked at last, rather vexed. I'm not a bird. You are, said the sheep. You're a little goose. This offended Alice a little, so there was no more conversation for a minute or two while the boat glided gently on sometimes among beds of weeds, which made the oars stick very fast in the water more than ever, sometimes under trees, but always with the same tall riverbanks frowning over their heads. Oh, please, those are some scented rushes, Alice cried in a sudden transport of delight. They really are, and such beauties. You needn't say please to me about them, the sheep said, without looking up from her knitting. I didn't put them there. And I'm not going to take him away. No, but I meant, please, may we wait and pick some, Alice pleaded, if you don't mind stopping the boat for a minute. How am I to stop it, said the sheep. If you leave off rowing, it'll stop of itself. So the boat was left to drift down the stream as it would, till it glided gently in amongst the waving rushes. And then the little sleeves were carefully rolled up, and the little arms were plunged in elbow deep, to get a hold of the rushes a good long way down before breaking them off. And for a while, Alice forgot all about the sheep and the knitting as she bent over the side of the boat, with just the ends of her tangled hair dipping into the water, while, with bright, eager eyes, she caught as one bunch of another of the darling-scented rushes. I only hope the boat won't topple over, she said to herself. Oh, what a lovely one. Only, I couldn't quite reach it. And it certainly did seem a little provoking. Almost as if it happened on purpose, she thought. That, though she managed to pick plenty of beautiful rushes as the boat glided by, there was always a more lovely one that she just couldn't reach. The prettiest are always the furthest away, she said at last with a sigh, up the obscenity of the rushes and growing so far off. With flushed cheeks and dripping hair and hands, she scrambled back into her place and began to arrange her newfound treasures. What mattered to her was just then was that the rushes had begun to fade and to lose all their scented beauty. From the very moment that she picked them, even real scented rushes, you know, last only very little while, and these, being dream rushes, melted away almost like snow as they lay in heaps at her feet. But Alice hardly noticed this. There were so many other curious things to think about. They hadn't gone much farther before the blade of one of the oars got fast in the water and wouldn't come out again. So Alice explained that afterwards. And the consequence was that the handle of it caught under her chin. And in spite of the series of little shrieks of, oh, from Paralys, it swept her straight off the seat and down amongst the heap of rushes. However, she wasn't a bit hurt and was soon up again. The sheep went on with her knitting all the while, just as if nothing had happened. That was a nice crab you caught, she remarked as Alice got back into her place, very much relieved to find herself still in the boat. 
Was it? I didn't see it, said Alice, peeping cautiously over the side of the boat into the dark water. I wish I hadn't let it go. I should so like a little crab to take home with me. But the sheep only laughed scornfully and went on with her knitting. Are there many crabs here? said Alice. Crabs and all sorts of things, said the sheep. Plenty of choice. Only make up your mind. Now what do you want to buy? To buy? Alice echoed in a tone that was half astonished and half frightened. For the oars and the boat and the river had vanished all in a moment. And she was back again in the little dark shop. I should like to buy an egg, please, she said timidly. How do you sell them? Five pence farthing for one, two pence for two, the sheep replied. Then two are cheaper than one, Alice said in a surprised tone, taking out her purse. Only you must eat them both if you buy two, said the sheep. Then I'll have one, please, said Alice, as she put the money down on the counter. For she thought to herself, they mightn't be at all nice, you know. The sheep took the money and put them away in a box. Then she said, I never put things into people's hands. That would never do. You must get it for yourself. And so saying, she went off to the other end of the shop and set the egg upright on a shelf. I wonder why it wouldn't do, thought Alice, as she groped her way amongst the tables and chairs, for the shop was very dark towards the end. The egg seems to get further away the more I walk towards it. Let me see. Is this a chair? It's got branches, I declare. Very odd to find things growing here. And actually, here's a little brick. Why, this is the queerest shop I've ever saw. So she went on, wondering more and more at every step, and that as everything turned into a tree the moment she came up to it, and she quite expected the egg to do the same. Okay, I think that's where we're going to leave our story tonight. All of the travelling over the last couple of weeks is... Well, it's kind of left me more exhausted than I anticipated. My head swimming with the imagery of our story tonight. So, I shall leave you to your own devices here before you go to sleep too. I hope that when you do, you sleep well. You deserve that. Good night.